Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is Episode 5, The Island at the Edge of the World, Part 3. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for keeping the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts of the show. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Tim, Brian, and Travis for joining up already. This episode covers 54 BCE, and the major characters are Julius Caesar... Noted friend of Brutus, veteran invader of Britannia, and, spoiler alert, also a rather famous senatorial pincushion. And it also features Cassivellaunus, the leader of the Britons, an all-around tough dude. And, as a side note, he was almost certainly not called Cassivellaunus, but the Romans were famously bad at translating non-Latin names into Latin, so we're just going to have to call him Cassivellaunus. Alright, let's get to it. So last week, we spoke about Caesar's first invasion, the 55 BCE invasion, which ended in, well, I wouldn't really call it a victory. Caesar managed to find success, sort of, but it was sort of like finding a lucky penny. It really didn't require any skill on his part. He just stumbled upon a pleasant happenstance. And that brings us to 54 BCE, and Caesar was once again looking across the channel. You didn't think he'd just leave and be done with the island, did you? Hell no. As soon as it was clear that Rome was pleased with his adventure, he quickly set about preparing for another invasion. But this time, he wouldn't just go on an expedition. This would be a large-scale event. So he set his men to work, building a fleet of over 800 ships. 600 of these were transports, and the remainder were warships, privateers, and the surviving ships from the first expedition. He had no intention of suffering the same naval losses once more. So, the new transports were designed so they could be easily hauled ashore. Essentially, Julius Caesar created the world's first fleet of landing craft. And he had over 600 of them. We're basically looking at the Roman version of D-Day. And news of Caesar's enormous fleet quickly reached the shores of Britannia. And with that news came a rush of preparation. Ambassadors from various tribes traveled across the channel to negotiate peace with the general, while others organized their defense. Cassivellaunus, most likely the king of the Catavellani, a tribe who settled in Hertfordshire, and actually, Catavellani roughly translates to excellent in battle, so you can guess what they focused upon. Well, Cassivellaunus was probably their leader, and he was one of the tribal kings who prepared to defend Britannia and he would soon play a pivotal role in this drama. Meanwhile, on the continent, Caesar organized five of his eight legions, including 2,000 cavalry, and made them ready for transport at Bologna. Think about that. He was taking two-thirds of his entire forces, so around 25,000 men in total, and was preparing to cross the channel. It's not like Gaul was peaceful, Only a few years ago, they dealt with the tribes of the Amorican Peninsula rebelling. And after that, they had hostile tribes crossing the Rhine, and it took the better part of the entire campaigning season to push them back. And yet, Caesar was building an enormous landing fleet in order to ferry about two-thirds of his men across the channel. It was on. Though he wasn't stupid, so Caesar didn't bring everyone and the remaining three legions, as well as the cavalry, were left behind under the command of Caesar's lieutenant, Labienus. 
and he was tasked with holding on to Gaul and maintaining the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And also, it was his job to make sure that supplies from the continent could be shipped over if needed. Caesar was not going to make the same mistake twice. He was ready for anything. And that should tell you something about Britannia at this point in history, shouldn't it? One of the most famous generals in Roman history was pretty much ready for anything and prepared to arrive with overwhelming force in order to put down a group of people that the Romans saw as uncivilized barbarians. But based upon Caesar's behavior, it was clear that he saw the Britons as a significant threat. But that being said, it didn't mean he was going to back down. So at nightfall, on July 6th, 54 BCE, Caesar and his flotilla set sail, hoping that his preparation would lead to better fortunes on the isle. The next morning, he landed at the same beach he used in his first invasion. But already, this time was different. Whereas the beach landing was a site for a pitched battle last year, this year, his forces weren't opposed in any way. I wonder what the Roman forces thought of this. Not all of them were veterans of the first invasion, and those who weren't there for the first one no doubt had heard about the fights that Caesar and his legions had waged on this strange island. And, combined with the legends that they'd heard about the island, I wonder if they were kind of relieved. Or, if they were a little let down. Maybe they were expecting something glorious and mystical, like the legions had encountered the year before. Whatever the case, the landing was easy. But it wasn't as big of a win as you might assume. Chances are that the reason the landing of Rome was unopposed was because at this point, the Britons had stronger leadership, and Cassivellaunus and his allies saw the sheer size of Caesar's invasion fleet and determined that a retreat to higher ground would be preferable to risking a total massacre on the beaches. Had the Britons been led with this sort of tactical acumen in 55 BCE, I wonder if it would have ended the same way. And if Caesar had died in Britannia, rather than on the Senate floor, would the world even look the same today? Anyway, things were sort of looking up, but Caesar wasn't going to trust fate. He immediately set his legions to work, building their defenses. One of the things that made the legions so effective was that they weren't just warriors. They were also builders. And by midday, a standard Roman military camp had been established. They were not wasting any time. And speaking of not wasting time... If he delayed an attack on the Britons, even for something as sensible as hauling the ships ashore, that would cause Caesar to lose the initiative, and it would have been abhorrent to the general. In fact, speed of action was so closely intertwined with the general's tactics that there's even a name for it, Caesariana Celeritas. So rather than taking the time to haul his ships onto the beaches, he led a night march, which included almost his entire force leaving only 10 cohorts and 300 cavalry to defend the camp. And he sought out any British resistance. Moving that many men, not to mention supplies, through enemy territory takes time. And so it wasn't until morning that they finally made it to the Stour Crossing, which was about 12 miles from his camp. And there he found the British army amassed. A skirmish broke out. But this time, the Romans clearly had overwhelming power. And so it wasn't long before the British forces fled from the battlefield, with some of them scattering into the countryside and others seeking sanctuary at a hill fort about one and a half miles from the crossing at Bigbury. But Caesar was playing for keeps. 
If these Britons wanted to hide in a hill fort, he would take it from them. As we discussed in earlier episodes, hill forts tended to be pretty big. And now this one was heavily stocked with angry blue warriors who were prepared to throw everything that wasn't nailed down at the Roman army that was amassing in front of them. In response to this, the 7th Legion utilized a formation that, in pop culture, has sometimes been referred to as a Roman phalanx. But it was actually called the Testudo Formation, or the Tortoise Formation. The soldiers would tightly bunch up. The men in the front would hold their shields in front of them, while the men behind would hold their shields above their heads. Thus, the soldiers were roughly imitating the formation's namesake. And while their advance was slow, it was also largely immune to the hail of arrows and stones that the British were hurling in their direction. And eventually, they were at the gates. And from there, it wasn't long before they breached the defenses. Once again, the remaining Britons fled. Caesar had his victory. Now all he needed to do was mop up the last of the fleeing Britons. But while he was organizing his forces for exactly that purpose, he received word that a storm had rolled in off the channel. You can almost imagine him saying, F*** again? Seriously? I hate this place. And even worse, just like before, the storm had damaged many of his ships. I wonder if he contained his outrage or if he had an outburst on the field. I mean, he had been on the island for scarcely more than 24 hours, and already, once again, he suffered another naval disaster. And now he's in the awkward position of having to either choose to let the British reorganize, or to probably lose many of his ships, since the small defensive force he left behind would be unable to rescue and haul many of the ships ashore. That's a tough spot to be in. But being trapped here once again was simply not an option, so Caesar halted his pursuit and returned to camp in order to survey the damage and organize the repairs. The Britons would have to wait. And should the Britons reorganize an attack, Caesar was confident that his legions could defeat them, as they had done in every other engagement. Upon returning to the camp, the general sent a messenger to the continent, requesting that Labienus provide him with craftsmen to repair his ships. And that act does demonstrate one of the major advantages that Rome had over the British tribes. Vast resources and complex organization. Think about it. A disaster on this scale would have wrecked one of the tribes, but Caesar could respond to it by just requesting further resources and manpower. And that's exactly what he did. And while Caesar awaited the arrival of these men, he set his soldiers to work, beaching the remaining 760 ships and fortifying their camp. And get this, despite the enormous number of soldiers at work, it took the Romans only 10 days to complete their tasks. And that's impressive, but those 10 days also gave the Britons ample time to organize into a single unit and select a supreme leader, Cassivellaunus. How Cassivellaunus accomplished this isn't known, as our information about these events only comes from Roman historians. But what we do know is that this was a troubling development for Roman interests. In the first invasion, the Romans were able to capitalize on the fractured nature of British tribal life. But here was a single unifying leader who might have the strength of personality to organize the bands of ferocious warriors into an army. Further, as he was very successful at drawing other Britons to his cause, his army was growing at an alarming rate. And that should tell you something about what was happening here. 
because despite the enormous size of Caesar's invasion force, he was still in enemy territory and greatly outnumbered. It's estimated that there were approximately 1 million people in Britannia, and the South was the major population center at the time. And many of the Britons of fighting age seemed to have been answering the call of Cassivellaunus. And they knew the land intimately, unlike the Romans. And Cassivellaunus and his army utilized this advantage and engaged in hit-and-run strikes against the Romans, using their superior knowledge of the lands as well as their mastery of war chariots. As before, the chariots would circle around the Romans, hurling javelins, and then they would make a breach into the formations, and the warriors could dismount, engage the infantry into hand-to-hand combat, and cause as much damage as they possibly could before having to be rescued by those same charioteers. And as before, this was quite successful, because with the exception of the veterans of the 55 BCE expedition, the Romans were unaccustomed to this sort of tactic, and found it rather difficult to adapt to. And so, this sounds like a recipe for British success, doesn't it? But the problem was that, just like in the prior year, the British strategy didn't complement their tactics. That is, the Britons were highly successful at hit-and-run tactics, and the Romans proved that they could not effectively defend against these chariot raids. Were the Britons to simply harry small groups of Roman soldiers, it's likely that they could have exhausted and bled the Romans to the point where Caesar would have to be forced to give favorable terms. Unfortunately, the British goal appears to have been to seek out a large-scale engagement and defeat the Romans there. And that was an area where Rome excelled. So, in an attempt to replicate the prior successes of 55 BCE, Cassivellaunus attempted to ambush a legion while it was foraging. The issue, though, was that this was not the same army that invaded in the prior year, and the most notable difference was the presence of cavalry. When they attacked the 7th Legion the prior year, there wasn't much the 7th could do because the Britons had superior mobility, and so they had the initiative. With the presence of Roman cavalry, however, things were a little more even, and so the Britons were unable to dominate the Romans and quickly were routed. And with that loss, Cassivellaunus's army largely evaporated, and with it, any hope of resistance. But the thing is, that while the army was largely dispersed, Cassivellaunus was still out there, and there were still warriors rallying to his cause. Until he was dealt with, the Romans in Britannia would always be under threat. Unfortunately for Caesar, Cassivellaunus had learned a valuable lesson from the recent defeat, and did what the Celts should have done well over a year ago. He aligned his strategy with his tactics. He wanted to make Rome leave and the best way for him to accomplish that wasn't to engage on their terms. It was to bleed them and make the land just so intensely dangerous for them that they won't want to come back. And so Cassivellaunus dismissed his infantry, retaining only 4,000 chariots, and engaged in what we would call today guerrilla tactics. Now, guerrilla warfare has successfully brought down superior forces all throughout history, and there are many examples of it. And of course there are many variations on the theme. But the one aspect that seems to be most consistent is that the guerrilla army needs the support of the people. They need places to be able to hide, to blend in, and to gain support from. After all, with such a small force, they can't afford to have complex support chains. They need the help of the common villagers to feed and protect them while they plot their next attack. 
And that was a problem for Casavellanus, because he and his tribe, the Catavellani, had bloodied more than a few noses. The fact of the matter is that from what we can tell, Celtic Britannia had been racked with intertribal war for most of its history, and consequently, Casavellanus had a variety of enemies who were eager to see his downfall. And one stood out more than the others, the Trinovantes. The Trinovantes had been after Casavellanus' blood ever since he killed their king, Emanuentius. And Emanuentius' son, Prince Mandobrachius, saw the rebellion as an ideal time to increase his standing with the more powerful Romans while also throwing his hated enemy, Casavellanus, to the wolves. All in all, it wasn't a bad plan. So Mandubracius struck a bargain with Caesar, that he would surrender to Rome in exchange for Rome's support of his throne, and, because he knew that some of the other British tribes would be enraged by his betrayal, he also demanded that Rome would defend his people from any retribution coming from the other British tribes. I imagine that Caesar must have been licking his lips like a lioness on the savannah when Mandobrachius made this offer. The main problem his legions had was that they weren't familiar with the land. But in one stroke, he could solve that, and all he would have to do is promise this guy could keep his throne, which was really no skin off of Caesar's nose, and that he would keep the other tribes from crushing him, which, if all went according to plan, was the goal anyways. Pax Romanitas was coming. And frankly, intertribal warfare just wasn't compatible with it. So of course Caesar accepted the offer. Meanwhile, Cassivellanus was going in the opposite direction. He had people he needed to feed, and many of the tribes just weren't cooperating, and in fact, were hostile to him. So he and his band were simply taking what they needed. This isn't exactly the best way to make friends, and it was driving the tribes into the arms of the Romans, who were seeking protection. And besides, many of the other tribes saw the writing on the wall. Rather than standing against this tide and being washed away, they swallowed their pride and gave up any hope of staying independent and came to Caesar begging for the same deal that Mandobrachius got. And so, in a very short space of time, the Chenemagni, the Segantiaki, the Ancalites, the Bibroci, and the Cassi had all abandoned the British cause and joined with the Romans. It seems that Cassivellanus' scorched-earth tactics were causing him to have to fight a war on multiple fronts. And Caesar was quick to take advantage, and for good reason. Things weren't exactly placid in the West. There were uprisings in Gaul, and two-thirds of his men were still in Britannia. He needed to get back to the continent, quickly. However, if he didn't defeat this Celtic upstart, he would have accomplished precisely nothing with this invasion. So this had to be resolved, soon. His moment came when one of the surrendering tribesmen told Caesar of the location of Cassivellanus' oppidum at Wheat Hampstead. As we discussed earlier, an oppidum was essentially a town located in a thick wood and protected by a wall around its exterior. It wasn't a bad defensive structure. However, regardless of how well supplied you are within your walls, things are not going well for you if Julius Caesar is coming your way. But as Caesar approached, Cassivellanus did something interesting. He ordered four Kentish kings under his command to attack Caesar's naval camp. Now this tells us a couple things about this early British general. First, he must have been an incredible leader to have managed to inspire these kings to attack Caesar's base of operations, despite the fact that the Britons had suffered numerous defeats, defections, and now their leader had Roman legions at his doorstep. This guy must have been incredibly charismatic. 
And second, he also clearly had a sound strategic mind. If the attack on Caesar's camp was successful, it would have been a terrible blow. And given that ancient warfare was largely a battle of morale, it could have turned the tide against the Romans. And third, Cassivellaunus was astoundingly brave. Instead of calling for reinforcements to save him, he chose to launch a completely different attack while he just tried to weather the storm that was coming his way. This guy was tough as nails. Unfortunately for the Britons, the Roman encampment was well defended despite Caesar's absence, and the Kentish kings were routed by the Roman garrison. Meanwhile, at Wheat Hampstead, things were going poorly as well. The Oppidum was well defended, but breaking through fortified positions was something that Caesar's legions were well practiced at. And it didn't take long before the walls fell, in not just one, but two locations. How do you even begin to defend against that? It was clear that the British cause was lost. But rather than risking further losses of Roman lives, lives that he would need in Gaul, Caesar halted his advance. He could have tried to destroy Cassivellaunus' forces utterly, but that ran the risk of enraging the local Britons. After all, it would have essentially been genocide, and that would cause more problems than it would solve. Needless to say, both parties were interested in reaching an accord quickly and so Caesar sent a familiar face to negotiate peace. Commius, the king of the Atrebates, who failed in his first negotiation and ended up captured and had to be ransomed back. Well, he's back in the story, and now he's going to negotiate peace with Cassivellaunus. And this time, it worked. Cassivellaunus agreed to provide Caesar with hostages, and a fixed tribute was established, though it should be noted that we have no evidence whatsoever that these tributes were ever paid. And an interesting fact regarding this surrender is found in its terms. Caesar chose to use the words deditio and vectigal when he wrote out the terms for the surrender. And those are legal terms that provided the first steps in forming a province out of a conquered territory. It seems that Caesar had intended to annex Britannia, though fate intervened and he never achieved that ambition. So, on August 29th, 54 BCE, Caesar wrote to Cicero, informing him that he intended a complete and full evacuation of Britannia by the middle of September of that same year. In the end, Caesar's two invasions were a failure. He defeated the Britons in virtually every military engagement, but he was unable to extend the borders of Rome onto the island. And ten years later, he would be dead on the Senate floor, and Britannia would remain free from Roman rule for nearly a century. However, Caesar did have a lasting impact on our island nation. To start with, King Commius, Caesar's envoy in 55 BCE and his negotiator in 54 BCE, eventually fell out of favor with the Romans. They just didn't trust the guy, which is a shame because he did a lot for them. But once that trust was lost, Caesar's lieutenant, Labienus, attempted to have him assassinated. But it failed, and in response, Commius fled to Britannia, where he established the Atrobatic Kingdom on the island, and he swore that he would never deal with the Romans again. And he didn't. Additionally, the island became more insular immediately following the invasion. The old trade routes that bound Gaul and Britannia, with the exception of Essex, were severed. Yet those ties weren't cut permanently, 
And as certain tribes, such as the Iceni, gathered strength, they once again engaged with the rest of the world. But Caesar's ambitions were over, and Commius, his once ally, was now in Britain, hating Rome as hard as he could. But interestingly, his sons would eventually become part of the British re-engagement with Rome. And it was the Atrobates, Commius's own people, who would become some of the closest British partners with Rome, and eventually bring them back to our shores. I wonder what Commius would have thought of that. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Twitter. Just go to at britishpodcast. And we have all kinds of other things. Pinterest. We have a Tumblr. We have forums. All kinds of stuff. So just go over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and have a poke around. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.